Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 122 called Melissa and Eric. Today's episode is sponsored by Medfertil by Elon Healthcare. Elon Healthcare is a small, women-owned and led Canadian business dedicated to the research and development of natural health supplements for male and female reproductive health. Medfertil is a once-a-day prenatal dietary supplement for couples planning to or struggling to conceive. This prenatal is enriched with vitamins and minerals, scientifically proven to increase your chances of fertility. The Medfertil for men and women combo package is on sale now. So if you're planning for a healthy pregnancy and you want to start Medfertil today, go to elonhealthcare.ca and use code Allison15 for an extra 15% off. Again, that's elonhealthcare.ca, E-L-A-N healthcare.ca and use code Allison15, A-L-I-S-O-N-15 for an extra 15% off. Thanks, Medfertil. Guys, I want to tell you all about Green Chef, the first USDA certified organic meal kit company. Green Chef makes eating well easy and affordable with plans that fit every lifestyle, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, or just looking to eat healthier, there's a range of recipes to suit any diet or preference. Ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped, so you can spend less time stressing and more time enjoying delicious home-cooked meals. I can vouch that Green Chef is easy and delicious. This afternoon, I made a recipe called Veggie and Bean Stuffed Peppers. Everything came portioned in the box, the instructions were super easy to follow, and 30 minutes later, I was eating a really yummy, low-carb, plant-based meal and I also had leftovers. So guys, give it a try. Go to greenchef.com slash 90infertileaf and use code 90infertileaf to get $90 off, including free shipping. Again, that's greenchef.com backslash 90infertileaf and use code 90infertileaf to get $90 off, including free shipping. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Thanks, Green Chef. Okay, guys, today I am talking to my incredible guests, Melissa and Eric, who you might know on Instagram as Live Child Free. And they are four years after making the decision to live childless or child free, as they say. We're going to talk about how they got to this point. And first, they're going to tell us about their infertility journey, which included lots of negative pregnancy tests, IVF, and an operation that Eric had to have that had so many complications that he ended up in the hospital for 25 days. And then we're going to talk about the pivot that they made when Melissa finally sat down and asked herself, how many more years of my life do I want to give to this heartache and this roller coaster ride? And at that point, I felt like I didn't want to give any more years to it, she says. So this is a conversation that does not end with a baby. And I love sharing these conversations. I think it's so important to share these stories and the people that decide to pivot and live child-free. And we are going to get into all the different terminology, child-free by choice, child-free not by choice, childless not by choice, and all that stuff. So please sit back and listen in. And thank you so much to Melissa and Eric. So without further ado, this is Melissa and Eric's infertility story. guys how are you today good how you doing hi it's so nice to be here it's so good to talk to you i'd love to start at the beginning with you guys tell me how did you guys meet and how did you get together well we met um many years ago we've been married for almost 10 years but have been together much longer than that so it was in our late 20s we met um we were both living in the dc area and we were set up by a mutual friend mm-hmm. so she gave Eric. Oh, she asked me, can Eric have your number? And I was Mm -hmm. like, sure. You know, I just, I was trying to be like more ballsy, (laughs) like open (laughs) to new things. Okay. Like did, you know, blind date. Sure. Um, she did show me a picture and showed him a picture, but then we met up at a, we talked on the phone for a while and then we eventually met up at a restaurant and, and here we are now in our (laughs) forties. Okay. All right, Eric, what's your version of that? Yeah, actually she got it 
she got it almost exactly she right. Nailed it. Uh, okay. Yeah, she nailed it. Sometimes she leaves out a couple parts, <laughs> but she got it this time. Did yeah, you guys know I, right away that you were into each other? I think so. Yeah. Well, actually, we talked on the phone the very first time we talked. We talked for like at least two hours. Yeah, we had a lot of phone conversations before, before we actually we got our schedules person. together. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we were really busy. So I think we were both really interested in each other and. You know, there were some things about each other that was different from other people we dated. So I think we clicked pretty early on. It wasn't long before we were exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then so. when did you talk about getting married? Well, we talked about getting married quite a few times. Um, we lived together first and then, but we dated for like eight years before we got married. So, mm-hmm. you know, we it had come up a lot, but it took a while. One of the natural kind of progressions, I guess, as as couples, as they decide they want to spend the rest of their lives together is talking about their family and what the future is going to look like. Did you guys have discussions like that about whether or not you wanted to have kids or, you know, kind of where you wanted to live and what were your like future plans? So I'll, I'll jump in with that. So one of the things that we she didn't mention is that when Melissa and I met, I had a daughter mm-hmm. and uh, she was from obviously from a previous relationship. And she was uh, born with pretty severe uh, special needs and she eventually passed away. And so, so, well, thank you for that. I, uh, you know, it was very difficult, very traumatic. Mm -hmm. And Melissa, you know, met my daughter and spent time with her and things like that while we were dating early, earlier in our dating stage. And so she was with me and knew me and all that when I went through all that grief. Mm -hmm. So she knew and i knew i was not any in any real big hurry to like go down that path again because for me the idea a lot of people have the idea of like when they have a kid that it's all going to work out and everything's going to be great mm-hmm. but that was not my experience my experience was you know hospitalizations and nurses and mm-hmm. special needs and round the clock care yeah and so I was not, you know, unfortunately super keen on going back into that world again, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I I think that's understandable. So it wasn't necessarily that I, well, I was going to say it wasn't that I didn't want to have kids, but I just was not really interested in thinking about it, which is one of the reasons why we, it took us so long to sort of finally settle down and get married. Because in my mind, I think like one of the reasons why I wanted to get married was because I was ready to start having kids or, you know, start a family. Mm-hmm. And, and I just and wasn't knew, ready for that. And you knew how much I wanted to be a mother. Right. So you wanted to be comfortable with that. I think before we tied the knot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's so interesting. You know, coming from that background, you're exactly right. And I've, I love that you said that Eric, you know, like people think you have a kid and it's just going to kind of work out and you were coming from such a different perspective. So that like, kind of complicates things from the get-go, right? Or like layers on, you know, a lot more feelings. Yeah. Um, and and it's because it's not common the way that I was thinking about it. It was sort of an added layer of sort of weirdness for me mm-hmm. because Melissa, you know, she was very adamant that she wanted to have kids. And I mm-hmm. was like, you know, that not every, it doesn't always turn out the way you think. Like, right. And I was gun shy. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. So what happened when you guys finally did decide to start to drive? So it was in 2011 and we had just gotten married. And so mm-hmm. we decided let's um, let's start trying and get rid of the birth control. And I was really excited. You mm-hmm. know, we just gotten married and I was like, everything's, everything's moving forward. You know, you have that feeling of things are fitting into place now and my my future dreams are happening. And mm-hmm. it was really exciting to start that process. But with, we were trying for about six months, I think when I was 34 at the time, mm-hmm. 34 and a half or so. And so after about five months, I went to the doctor just to, to an RE to see, is there anything going on? You know, I just wanted to know earlier rather than later. And they didn't see any issues. Everything looked good. So he just said, let's have your husband come in next. So maybe a few months or so after that, Eric went in for the sperm analysis. Mm -hmm. And that was when we found out that there were some issues with, did you want to speak to that, Eric? I don't want to. No, go go (laughs) ahead. You got it. Um, 
with the semen volume. So mm-hmm. the quality was good, but the volume was really low. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, you know, I think we were, it might've even been a year by that point since we started, cause we had to switch insurance and all this, but we went to a different RE and he basically said, your only option is going to be to do IVF with ICSI. Okay. You're, you're never, you might as well skip IUI, skip trying naturally. It's not going to work. Okay. So how did you guys feel when you got that diagnosis? And Eric, how did you feel when you got the test results? When I first got the the diagnosis of the low volume, I sometimes I need <laughs> Melissa to be my memory. Was I really that bothered by that? The thing is, you he was in it's the so funny, of- isn't it? Funny you forget all these things and <laughs> yeah. like dates and yeah. specifics. Well, and so I know. much happened after that, right? Yeah. Like, oh. I get it. I, yeah, he was in the middle of law school, so there was a lot going on. And I think at the beginning, I think there was some stress associated with it, but at the beginning it, it, I don't, I think I was more the emotional one. And I had, when we got that diagnosis of like, oh, you're going to have to do IVF with XC. I, I just was so upset. And I felt like my world was crashing down on me because with Eric's history and the trauma he'd been through, I thought, well, he's never going to be okay doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to think that there's a higher chance of, you know, possible birth defects or other issues. And so I, which it, I know that that the statistically that's very low, but when someone's been through something, you know, you're thinking about the worst possible scenarios when you've sure. already gone through the worst scenario, you know? Yeah. That makes so, sense. I was like, he's not going to want to do this. And I just suddenly just felt like, you know, everything crashing down on me. So we, but that's not really how I was feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I think you were seems... a little more distant from it yeah. at that point. And then that same doctor said, well, because you're, because I was in that appointment by myself, he was like, because you're having all these feelings, you're so upset and you're not sure if your husband's going to be okay with that. Why don't you, I'm going to recommend that he go see this urologist within the same medical group who specializes in male infertility. He's um, really great. Why don't you go see if there's anything he can do first and then revisit this later if necessary. And so that kind of calmed me down a little bit. And I Mm -hmm. shared that with Eric. And I think right from the get-go, he was okay with going and seeing, you know, if there was anything that doctor could, could do. Okay. So I went to the urologist and basically he did a, like a sonogram type of deal and told me that the reason why the volume was low was that I had a blockage in my seminal vesicle and the seminal vesicle is basically what, you know, your testes Mm -hmm. um, produce sperm. The seminal vesicle produces the rest of the fluid that comes out, you know, when you're, when you ejaculate. Okay. And so that was the reason for the low volume. Mm-hmm. And he basically just said, I see the blockage. This is something that I can fix on an outpatient sort of procedure. It's not going to be super involved and you should be good to go. Okay. And so at that point I was like, okay, cool. Right. Like, we figured out what's going on. It's not like, like she said, it's not like this, the semen are, you know, not good quality. It just wasn't, wasn't a whole lot of them. Okay. So. Yeah. We were like, this is great news. Yeah. You're like, we have answers. Awesome. All right. Cool. Like he could do this quick outpatient procedure and we could be good to go. It's covered by insurance because it's called urology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not called infertility. And so we were like, this is, this is great. And, and Eric, you know, didn't take him long to decide to do it. Um, He was all for it. So. Yeah. Because you got to remember at this time, you know, we kind of skipped over the part of like, I was gun shy and hesitant about kids for a long, long time. But as Melissa and I relation, our relationship grew and I realized that I, I wanted to you know, be with her long term, I had to be OK with the idea of trying to mm-hmm. have kids. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was already on board with we're going to do this. It's because I don't want it to seem like I was gun shy at this point. Right. At this point, I had already made the decision and like, we're going to try. So when that decision and the doctor was like, okay, you have this issue with uh, your seminal vesicle, there the hesitancy of like, I don't really want to do this anyway, that actually wasn't occurring. I was fully on board with moving forward, trying to have kids. Mm-hmm. So like you said, when we heard that, it was like, oh, okay, this is all you need to do. All right, let's do it. Yeah, right. We went on. We even went on a vacation right before that procedure because we were like, let's let's go on a vacation, take a break, and then we come back. We'll do this, and we were feeling super hopeful and great. Okay. 
I feel but, like I'm predicting <laughs> it's not going to go as planned from the tone in your voices. It, it, it's yes. Yeah. So, so, okay. so, so did not go when you got planned. back. So we had the procedure. Um, and I remember he basically said, like, I think the procedure was on a Thursday. And he said, but he did, I think he said, basically by Sunday, you should be able to, you know, resume a normal sex life and mm-hmm. everything should be good to go yeah he was like once you're feeling good after a couple of days but just start trying again mm-hmm. yeah and so anyway what happened was he did the procedure and i remember when i woke up i didn't i felt kind of weird and didn't feel well mm-hmm. but he was like oh that's normal you know yada yada he said you should be fine but he said one you know thing which was don't get constipated mm-hmm. and i just remember that and one of the reasons i remember it is because even even now, that's not really a problem for me. Yeah. I have the opposite problem. Right. I you know I go too frequently. I constipation is not something I ever experience. Okay, but you said you wanted the details. Yeah. Yes, I told you no such thing as deep. So as you can sort of guess what happened, I I never felt well, mm. and so for the next I would say like two weeks, mm-hmm. I felt weird. I was having you know, bouts of constipation and a lots of pain. I even went to the the emergency room one night. Did I stay overnight? I think I did. I can't. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. But he had a fever, and they were like, "If he gets a fever, you have to go because it might be an infection." Yeah. So we did that. Then they said there was no infection, but I mean, it was two weeks of constantly calling the on-call doctors, going to the mm-hmm. store to get things, him mm-hmm. being increasing amounts of pain. Right. And you're like, shit's not right. Like something's no. going on, right? Something's yeah. clearly going. Right. Yeah. But I didn't know, you know, I had no idea what it was, but mm-hmm. I just knew it. And I thought maybe I just wasn't healing as fast as, as I needed to or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, about two weeks later, like the pain is just excruciating oh, no. to the point where like, we were just like, let's just go to the emergency Yeah, room. he and and his abdomen felt hard. Mm. And I he had looked at me at one point that night and was like, Am I gonna die? And oh God. And I I was like, We're going back to the hospital right now. We are going. And he he was even having like it's walking really slow. We get in the mm. car and we get to the emergency room and they realize that he has abdominal pain. They immediately take him back, they do imaging. And then our lives just changed because it doctors rushed in. They they had already started pumping his stomach, giving him high pain meds. Then they rush in and tell me he has to go on emergency surgery. There's air in his abdomen. He has a what's perforated, the word? Bowel. perforated bowel. Oh. So he is completely septic. He's in septic shock, which oh is my God. fatal. Right. And he was in and out because he was on pain meds. So he was kind of in and out of consciousness. And, and and they were telling me all this. I'm trying to process it. But they said he has to go in now. He's going to be getting a colostomy mm-hmm. because we don't know where the perforation is. We have to let it heal. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I didn't even know what a colostomy was. Mm-hmm. I did. But Eric did. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, when they explained to me what it was, I said, well, is he, is this something he's going to have the rest of his life? And they said, usually they can eventually reverse it usually, mm-hmm. but it's not a guarantee. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I'm, I'm just, every time he's out of it, I'm sobbing. I'm just completely erect, terrified that he's not going to make it. And they, if he does, he's going to have a colostomy bag for the rest of his life. So yeah. it was, it was extremely traumatic. Yes, that is. So, okay. So you went in for surgery, Eric, and what, what happened? So basically what happened was, uh, they had the surgery and, um, I ended up in the hospital for 25 days. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I was in, uh, obviously in intensive care for a few days and then for two weeks, you were two in weeks. ICU because yeah. of the infection. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because it's sepsis is your whole entire body is right. infected and, so the first four days he was on a ventilator and basically in like an induced coma. Oh my God. Because, you know, it's kind of touch and go those first few days. They don't, they're trying to get your body to heal or come out of the infection. You're on like four different types of antibiotics. You have, mm-hmm. he, I mean, he had tubes coming out of everywhere. Oh my um, gosh. That must've been terrifying. 
It was absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. It was so, yeah. So like he said, he was in the ICU for two weeks and then he was able to get, you know, bumped down a level for the remaining 13 days. Mm -hmm. And then we went home finally. Yeah. And obviously I had a colostomy bag and I had to wear that bag for a year. Wow. So, and eventually, you know, the doctor said that it might be reversible or uh -huh. it should be reversible. And so basically what happened is a year later, I had um, reversal surgery, which, okay. so I don't, I'll just explain basically what, what, what the colostomy, what they do is they take a piece of your large intestine, uh -huh. they cut, cut a hole in your chest and pull your, a, a piece out. And so you remove your solid waste into a bag, right? The bag is attached. Yep. And so with the reversal surgery, they open you back up and then sew the pieces of your intestine back together. Okay. And hopefully everything works out. Right. Well, and that, so I had that. And that was successful. So now I'm able wow, to. Wow, it was successful. That's great. So um, that was an enormous relief that day, a year later. Yeah. yeah. So that's also, you know, got to affect your relationship and intimacy and all that, right? So mm -hmm. um, 100%. There's another layer of complications. Yeah. God, you guys have been through so much already. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, amidst all that, there's still this elephant in the room of infertility because that's right. We were going through infertility. That's how we ended up in the situation. But yet, yeah we're totally focused at that point on survival and, and Eric getting healthy again. Right. But obviously the conversation around kids would still occasionally come up, but there were moments where I just felt like that's never going to happen for us. Like how yeah. could it happen after this? Understandable. Yeah. So it was definitely difficult. The intimacy was difficult. Eric was having to deal with a whole new body system and, totally. and adjust to that, but not totally mentally adjust to it. Like you would, if it was permanent. Right. Yeah. The other thing about it is like, it was, it was supposed to be temporary. So I didn't want to fully dive in and embrace life with a colostomy bag because mm -hmm. I didn't want to have a colostomy bag. Mm -hmm. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Like there's certain people for a lot of people who end up with them getting that bag it increases or, or improves their the quality of their life tremendously. It's because they had something like Crohn's disease or some other thing and having the bag makes them have closer to normal function. Mm -hmm. That wasn't my experience. Mm -hmm. My experience was I was, you know, using the restroom normally. And then all of a sudden I had to have this bag. So I kind of hated it. Yeah. I get and it. so if you go on the, the mm -hmm. message boards or whatever, it's people, Oh, I'm so happy. I have this. And it just never fit for me. So there was this disconnect for me where like, I hate this thing and I don't want to learn to live with it mm -hmm. unless I have to. Right. So Yeah. So you're like holding out hope that this is just going to be a temporary thing. So once you finally had the reversal and it was successful, how long before you guys got back on the, the train of trying to have a baby? Probably another year. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's, the conversation never left. There would still be times when we would talk about other options. We had conversations where we talked about adoption or we talked about third-party reproduction. So we talked about other things occasionally, but we still were kind we were still healing from what we had been through. For me, a lot of the trauma of what we had been through kind of started, I just started to feel it after he had the reversal surgery because up until then I had been just holding my breath. Mm -hmm. and kind of surviving. So for me, I needed to go to therapy and really deal with some of the effects of that experience. But at some point within the next year, Eric brought up and suggested, well, maybe we should look into IVF mm -hmm. and be open to that. And which really kind of surprised me. I wasn't really expecting us to ever go back to a fertility clinic after everything we'd gone through. Mm -hmm. But him saying that kind of allowed me, I kind of felt permission to like, think about that and, um, feel hopeful again. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, that's more of my body. That's going to have to go through the more invasive things. So I would be okay with that. Whereas I never would have been okay with him doing anything ever again. That was more invasive. Right. But I thought IVF is going to be mostly me. Mm -hmm. So we decided at that point to go visit a doctor we were back in Los Angeles because we'd moved from another place and we were like, okay, well, let's, let's go to a doctor and look into this. And we decided to go through with it. Mm -hmm. And 
it was like this jar of hope reopening for yeah. me. Like, I, you know, Good it's like description. The, yeah. the can had been closed. The hope can had been closed. I love that. Suddenly it was like, it opened up and I was feeling all this hope again of like, Oh my God, like we're doing IVF and I, this might really work. And, you know, we've been through so much, but maybe, maybe this will work out for us. So mm-hmm. we did two rounds of IVF with that doctor and we were, we only through those two rounds had one embryo that was able to be transferred mm-hmm. and did a transfer, but I didn't get pregnant. Mm-hmm. So both of those rounds were really devastating. Yeah. And, you know, I was pretty, we were both pretty worn out after both of those. So we again, took another break mm-hmm. after that and weren't really sure what we were going to do and had mm-hmm. to have different conversations. I think that was the first time maybe Eric had brought up us just not having kids. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, I was not receptive to it. I remember looking at him with an attitude and just being like, (laughs) so it's just going to be you and I for like the rest of our lives. (laughs) Right. It was like, that was like, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know if you, did you, Eric, do you remember that point or do you remember Um, thinking that? No, I, I mean, I remember having a conversation, but you know, the reason that I'm I'm a little hesitant is because I when she Melissa was talking about the opening up the can of hope and all that stuff, I realized that I never had that. Mm. I was I had dealt with so much like disappointment and frustration mm. and so many different aspects of life that like I was just like, let's try IVF. And the funny thing was that opening up the can of hope thing, I don't think you really let me know that you were really full of all this hope. Because mm. I really wasn't. I was like, well, let's try it. See if it works. But even then I knew the percentage, I knew the, yeah. the odds weren't in our favor. Yeah. So I never, I never had that. And so when I said, when I brought up, like, maybe we need to consider the fact that we might not have kids. Yeah. That was sort of just matter of fact, based on the, look at how far we've come so far. And mm. we're doing this thing that has the 20% success rate, mm. we might not end up with kids. Yeah. He's more of like a realist and mm-hmm. let's look at the facts. That's how my husband yeah. is too. And I'm like, let's yeah. try everything. Yeah. 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 Completely. I'm, yeah. I'm more emotional. Um, but he also so, knew that I needed to, he also wanted me to feel like I had done all I needed to do. Yeah. Right. So let me ask you this. Did the, did the surgery aside from, you know, almost being fatal with a mishap, did, did you, did it work? Like, did it make the male factor better so 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 i had a catheter inserted into my mm-hmm. male private part mm-hmm. into the hole i'm I'm trying to be graphic to let you know how painful mm. it is ouch yes all men all men who were here this would be like oh my god yeah everyone so, just like crossed their legs and like yeah. yeah yeah so i had a catheter for the entire 25 days i was in the hospital and then several days i would say maybe another month after i came home from the hospital so wasn't you're giving me a look it wasn't a month i don't think it was that long but you did have it when we got home yeah yeah it was at least a couple weeks so anyway there was all kinds of like swelling and issues related to that that we never really got a real you know chance to Mm -hmm. see if everything Mm -hmm. healed up but when we got to the ivf part and you had to give your sample mm-hmm. it's like the quality was still good it's basically the same but i don't think anything really improved until we gotcha. did acupuncture acupuncture actually did help yeah hmm. interesting okay yeah completely forgot about acupuncture help <laughs> yeah so like because after the two rounds of ivf when we had that break uh-huh and we had that first child-free discussion then we we decided to just kind of look into every option and we went to an adoption seminar and we talked about that experience and then uh-huh. I was like, well, let's do some of the natural stuff we've never done. And then I heard about this like amazing doctor in LA. Let's do this natural stuff. And then let's go to this doctor and see what she thinks and maybe do like another treatment with her. So we, we lost weight. We did acupuncture over the course of a pretty long period of time. I don't know, Mm -hmm. nine months or something. So you're both going to acupuncture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Every week. Yeah. So we were doing all of the, just trying to be very healthy naturally and all of mm-hmm. that. And so mm-hmm. then we, we go to this, this other doctor, she, she runs like a thousand tests because she's very thorough trying to get a full picture. And then we decide to do a round of IVF with her. Mm-hmm. And 
we didn't end up with any embryos that were genetically normal. So the devastation after that was, I, I just, I think of like cries as being, my cries as being far more like audible and like Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, like that guttural cry that like you're, the devastation is just so deep. And yes. And I, I think I just knew after that round that I'd hit, hit a point where I just couldn't do anymore. Mm -hmm. The, I hit whatever my boundary was where it was like, I can't, I can't go through any more physical, mental, emotional, and in every way I've just hit every wall that Mm -hmm. I have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that was where at that point where we started, we were seriously talking about, you know, child-free living being our resolution. Uh Uh-huh. So did you, were you familiar with anybody? Like, was there anybody in your life that had gone through infertility and then decided to live child-free? Like, did you have any, or did you find any people I don't know if you were like on Instagram yet or if you'd started your podcast at this point yet, but what was no, the, no, like, no, no, we definitely hadn't started a podcast. So what yeah, was the I, support? Like what kind of support were you guys getting? Pretty much there none. was none. I, yeah. you know, when we were going through infertility, there were times pretty early on where I had searched online to try to find people, find people who were childless after infertility because the fear was so heavy. The fear mm-hmm. of never becoming a mother was so intense. And I think drives so much of the suffering that you feel or that I felt mm-hmm. that I, I kind of wanted to know, can I be okay if mm-hmm. this doesn't work out? Mm-hmm. And I did find a few bloggers back then. And I don't know, maybe one book. There wasn't very much, but there was a little bit. That would have been 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't much like now today. If you are able to go on Instagram and search certain hashtags and things, you can find a lot more resources, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't much then. And certainly when we stopped, I mean, I had never known anyone who, I didn't have any close friends who'd gone through infertility period, Mm -hmm. one family member, but I didn't know anybody who left it without a Mm -hmm. child. Yeah. So did you guys have like a, one of those deep discussions that was like, we're going to stop pursuing parenthood and like focus on ourselves and like being a family of two. Like, did you ever sit down or was it just kind of gradual and it just, you just both kind of came to that same place? Well, for me, the last round was kind of like the Hail Mary of like, mm-hmm. let's get healthy. Let's do everything we can do. We did the acupuncture, all mm-hmm. that stuff. And then it still didn't work out. So for me, it was like, it was a little less emotional because I didn't necessarily, I knew what the odds were the whole time. And so when we were dealing with all the disappointment, it wasn't some huge shock for me. And Mm -hmm. it was basically like, do we want to keep doing this? Like it hasn't been working. The odds aren't really great. Why are we continuing to do this? Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. but for Melissa, it was more of an emotional, like, no, 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 this is my life's calling to be a mother, blah, blah, blah. Mm And, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't mean to. Yada, that yada, yada, whatever. Yeah. No, but seriously, exactly. that, that is kind of how she was. And for me, being a parent was not necessarily this idea of sunshine and roses. Right. So it was like, this isn't looking like this is in the cards for us. Maybe mm-hmm. we can, you know, try something else. Yeah. And to answer your question, we did have, I think it was more than one conversation, but I feel like within a month, of that last IVF, we had made a very, very serious permanent decision that we were done. Well, it was really, let's be clear. It wasn't my decision. It wasn't like I convinced her to stop because I knew if I told her or or (laughs) I was the one who was responsible for saying this is over, that it wasn't going to be helpful or good for us long term. It needed to be, I was willing to do another one if she wanted to do another one. Yeah. He was like, are you sure? Like, are you sure you're going to be okay? And yeah. And, you know, I never changed my mind after that. I could have, but, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was, you know, emotional and there, there were other things involved. So I wasn't trying to be some robot dictator right. telling her, <laughs> telling her to stop. Yeah. So Melissa, can you talk us through a little bit more about how you finally came to like peace with that decision? Cause I know that there's people out there listening and I've talked about this a lot before in various like in my fertility rally support groups and stuff and Mm -hmm. with other people I've interviewed, 
you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think people sometimes are, are scared to pivot and scared Mm -hmm. to change course. And you're, you get so laser focused on this end goal of having a baby. And that's the happy ending that you don't realize that there are other happy endings too. Mm -hmm. So how did you, if you don't mind like talking me through a little bit, how you, you know, finally made that decision and then like came to be at peace with it? I think for me, it had to do with constantly checking in with myself and how I was feeling throughout all of the years of infertility, which was about six years. Mm -hmm. And when I would check in and see how I was feeling, like there were times after like maybe even the second round of IVF or after Eric's surgery, where I really felt like, you know, this isn't going to happen for us. We're done. But then, you know, a month or two later, I would feel differently. It was like, no, you know, I, I really like, I, what about this? Or what about this? Like, I really wasn't mm-hmm. when I check in with myself, it was like, no, I'm not really done with this. I really want to pursue other avenues. But after checking in with myself, like after that last one, I really felt like my life is the way that I internally felt was like, my life is trying to get me to accept something Mm. and I'm pushing against it because I'm afraid, Mm -hmm. but maybe I need to embrace it. I really felt like I'm the way I've described it in the past is like, I'm banging my head against the wall mm-hmm. and I just can't keep banging my head against that wall anymore. Like the mm-hmm. wall's not going to move. And for me, I just felt like, and I, th- I think also what we went through with Eric changed my perspective on life. Mm-hmm. And I felt like was asking myself in those check-ins, like how many more years of my life do I want to give to this heartache and this right. roller, this roller coaster ride? And mm-hmm how much more of myself emotionally and mental health wise and physically do I want to give to this process? And at that point, I didn't feel like I wanted to give any more years to it. Mm -hmm. It had already sucked up so much of my Mm thirties. I was about to turn 40 and I just thought, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And I want us to be able to actually have our next decade together be full of like new possibilities and right. finding new new things to fill these spaces that before were being filled with infertility and all this struggle. Right. So that's what it was for me. It was really checking in with myself and and feeling what do I really want right now and let me mm-hmm. look at a look at this from a bigger perspective. Mm-hmm. So once you guys both kind of came to that decision, did you feel a sense of relief almost? I definitely felt a sense of relief. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of emotions going around, but the initial one was definitely a sense of a burden being lifted and a relief that I don't have to think about this anymore. Mm -hmm. As far as like the, the making appointments and the shots and the, and and the taking your temperature and all that crap. Totally. (laughs) It's like, I'm done with that. You're right. And that it's such a time, it's such a time suck. And then all of a sudden it's been six years and you're like, what just happened? And like so much of your thought process every day is just consumed with it. Totally. Um, It's just so difficult. And so I definitely felt a relief from that. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you, Eric? Um, I don't think I would say that it was relief because I knew that for for Melissa, it was this like devastating, like mindset shift. And so like, I wasn't, it wasn't relief because like, I don't, I don't because know. Because you were I'm, concerned about yeah, me. I, yeah. I was like, okay, now we're in this new world. And, and like, I don't want to say this was her thing, but it was her thing. Like mm-hmm. the IVF and the decisions. And I really want to be a mother and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, I want to do it too. But mm-hmm you know, things don't always work out. And so if it Mm -hmm. doesn't work out, Mm -hmm. like I didn't have that same level of hope and optimism that she Mm -hmm. did. So then when we decided to stop, it wasn't relief because I I didn't have as much invested in it Mm. as she did. Then I became concerned for her Mm. once we made that decision to stop. Concerned about what? Like, is this death of a dream, death of her ideal of what life was going to be going to be so devastating to her that she'll never get over it or that, mm. you know, it'll be very difficult for us to move forward. That was mm-hmm. one of my concerns. So it wasn't relief. Mm-hmm. That was definitely not the the emotion I was experiencing. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So what did, what did life look like? Okay. So this, 
you know, the kind of the closing of this chapter, as it were, you know, I know that you guys have live a life and reading some of your Instagram posts and stuff. It's like, you've got loads of love and learning and laughter. So tell me what does life look like now? Well, we are a little over four years now since that first decision. Okay. And we def, I definitely went through a lot of grief Mm. and especially the first year, Mm -hmm. year and a half. But now it's interesting because when I think about my life now, I, if I look at the things that I still struggle with in my life, they're not connected to me not being a mother, Mm, except for occasionally when my grief will, when something will get triggered, like Mm -hmm. there will always be times in my life where that grief gets triggered and that emotion comes up. Mm -hmm. I think it's just a permanent part of myself that I've accepted Mm -hmm. just like any grief, you know, some, you can be around something that triggers it and the emotion comes up and, you know, you, may not last for very long. Or you what have- was like an example of a recent trigger or maybe not recent, but like your last one you can think of? Two people having, getting pregnant during the pandemic accidentally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like quote unquote. And being like, oh my God, we just looked at each other and it happened. Like, <laughs> yeah. That like yeah. quarantine babies, people, like all that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a trigger for me is when, when people find out they're pregnant and especially if they weren't trying, because mm-hmm. it's like, so like, I, it's like a, you're there, you're there like a unicorn. Like I'm like, how I, know. I can't even like imagine that. Like it's so beyond my experience. Right. Um, it's so true. Yeah. And I think what it does is it, it validates everything I went through. And I think that's why it triggers the grief. Mm, Cause it's like, you, you went through freaking hell. Yeah. And they just had sex acting like whoopsies. Right. So it kind of is like, it validates. And I think that's why it, it, it triggers it, you know? And so, but it doesn't, I'm not down for the count when it happens usually for a long period of time. It's usually I bounce back pretty quickly, Uh but so I, it does still get triggered, but I will say back to my other point, most of the things that I struggle with in life are things that I struggled with before that, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. body image, you know, things Mm -hmm. that I've dealt with that are lifelong struggles that have nothing to do with infertility. Oh yeah. You and me, we could have a conversation about that, a whole different podcast. (laughs) I've been there. I mean, that's, that's been since I'm a teenager, that's totally work. So that's not, those things aren't really related. Most of the time, what I struggle with isn't really related to Mm -hmm. being child-free after infertility. So Mm -hmm. it's really nice to get to that place. Yeah. (laughs) And and also to have like the mind shift is how we talk about it because it's an identity shift afterwards. Right. I think of myself as a child-free person and I'm, an, you know, we have a family of two and our dog and like, I don't think of myself anymore as being like, usually as being infertile or mm-hmm. it's, it's just, I'm, I'm a child-free person and this is my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And so it's, we're in a very different place than we were four yeah. years ago. Eric, what do you think has been like the the greatest part of making this decision and, 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 you know, kind of pivoting and, and living the life as you guys are living it now. I think just what Melissa said is is pretty accurate. I think that we had to deal with the disappointment slash grief. And that took a while. Like that's actually what led us to do our podcast is that we were, we felt so out of sorts, lost, lost. (laughs) Like, what are we doing? Like, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And the thing is like, I, I said this and I say it all the time, like, I was trying to figure out where are all these people who are the 80% of people who aren't successful with infertility treatments? Where are they? We can't find them. Mm-hmm. We're not hearing their voices. All we hear about is the people who ended up with kids mm-hmm. and are successful. And I'm like, they got to be out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that was kind of, it's weird. We started a podcast looking for other people. Right. Like, yeah. Like hoping other people would maybe talk back to us. We'd only right. been, we'd only been like five months, five, six months, I think, since we had yeah. made our decision that we started the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we were like, we're going to talk through this. And so hopefully if any of you are out there, reach out to us. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's so why doing, I started mine too. Or this one was because I was like, I need where, where, you know, same with me. Like it was after I had finally had my son through IVF, but I still was craving these stories and these people mm-hmm. and was just like, where are you? <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So do you find that the, the community has grown or like, at least you found more people along the way over the last couple of years? Yeah. That's been the biggest thing is mm-hmm. we've reached out by us, reaching out. People have 
talk back to us and we've learned a ton about what life is like. And, and like, I think that the biggest thing for everybody is just, am I normal? Mm-hmm. And so they hear our stories and they feel, you know, listeners, they feel normal and they give us information, write us letters and we go, okay, there's mm-hmm. somebody in Sweden who's going through this too. And then that makes Melissa and us feel a little more normal. Mm-hmm. And so we've also just got a lot of perspective on why it bothers us so much. Like, and what we've concluded is that like, this idea of not being normal or not being like other people is so devastating. Being left out is yeah. such a devastating thing. And like, that's what binds us all together. Mm-hmm. And it's a real human mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. to feel that. Mm-hmm. And so like, in a sense, it takes a while to get over it and you you do grieve it. But then after a while, for us, it gave us comfort. That's mm-hmm. what I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like he said, there's that you have to become you have to get comfortable with being different and kind of countercultural. And that takes a while for a lot of people. Not everybody wanted to be that way. They didn't want yeah. to be out of the box. You know, we wanted, right. yeah. And it's, it's difficult when you feel like everyone else is going past you and everyone else is going on to these, these other steps in life. And you, you feel like you're left behind and you have to make your own path. Mm-hmm. That's something that takes a while to get used to, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, seeing more of a community, getting emails from around the world, right. seeing an Instagram community grow now right. is is definitely really helpful. Yeah. And, and the Child Free Collective. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, I've had a bunch of people on my show too, who are child free. Have you guys ever talked to Ruth Corden? No. Um, well, just through Instagram, like a couple of DMs. Yeah. You yeah. should have her on your show. She's awesome. Yeah. She's um, pretty funny. I'm glad that 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 message is getting out there more now, but it's true because one of the things that I always say about that is that when it comes to infertility, you received, we received a medical diagnosis. So this isn't like a competition that we all entered and we just don't give up, keep going. So you can win the competition. Like this is a medical diagnosis. Like this is something that is a medical diagnosis that doesn't have a guaranteed cure, so to speak. And so if you choose to at some point accept it and move forward without kids, that's not giving up. That's right. I'm, I'm accepting this medical diagnosis and I'm choosing to move forward. Right. And you're and, choosing a different kind of a happy ending. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. really changing your perspective. And it's another reason why it's very hard to do is because we're raised in a culture that is, is so infused with messages that our worth as women comes mm. in being mothers and you rarely hear, you know, narratives that are different from that. And so it's when you're going through infertility and you're terrified that you're not going to be a mom because you're thinking, well, who am I going to be if I'm not a mom? Like, what's my future going to be like if I don't have that? Because we don't see that and we don't hear about it. So I really appreciate people like you who have um, started, you know, having guests on their podcasts and platforms who are talking about this because- so many people don't want to talk about it. <laughs> no, it's, it's such a big part of the story. I mean, Katie Seppi was on when I first launched a couple of years ago. She was the first one I talked to. And mm-hmm. it was actually because she reached out to me and was like, yo, there's another part of the story that you're missing. And, here it, and I was yeah. like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I don't know if she said yo, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so it's so important to to share stories like yours. I would love to wrap it up, guys, with just, you know, if in case anybody is listening and you know, needs is kind of thinking of going this, the route that you guys went, the childless route, child-free. Um, I see, again, I don't know if it is it childless, child-free. Do you guys it just depends on the person we use both okay. terms. You use both. Okay. <laughs> there's I no, never want to say the wrong thing. You know, there's no great perfect term. Yeah. Like, we don't even like childless and child-free, but we just pick child-free because it sounded more positive. <laughs> yeah. Do you it's say just, like child-free, not by choice or child-free by choice or, or just child-free? It just, just, we say everything. Okay. Like we're not yeah. that picky. We, some people yeah. are really particular with their terms. Right. We usually just say child-free or child-free after infertility, but sometimes we say childless, childless, not by a choice. Yeah. I mean, you know, right. we're like, whatever. Okay. Sometimes Thank we just say that. we don't have kids. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're not that picky. Okay. But my point being, sorry, I got on a tangent there. If somebody's listening and, you know, might be wanting to go child-free, what would you say to somebody, you know, not to persuade them either way, but just in terms of life after infertility that it can be great you know like what what would your i guess 
kind of advice or just overarching thoughts on on what you guys have been through? What would that be? Well, one thing that that I would like people to know, I heard somebody say this one time and it really resonated with me that, you know, don't presume to know your future self because you haven't met her yet. Mm. And you don't, you sometimes are so afraid of like what you would be like in a certain situation, but you never really know until you're there. And I never thought that I could be content and happy as a child-free woman and not as a mother, but I didn't know my future self when I had those fears. Wow. And I just got the chills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With every, everything that I've been through, it's changed cool. my perspective. It's changed me and who I am. And I found out how resilient I really am that I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. And so for someone, if they're listening and they're struggling with infertility, you don't need to feel afraid of not having kids because you're, you are stronger and more resilient than, you know, and you, and there are, there is support out there and we're out there and other people are out there that can provide you some support and comfort if that is what you choose. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to Melissa and Eric. Guys, if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast and you are a fan, I would urge you to do so so that you get the episodes right when they publish on either Wednesday or Thursday morning, depending on the week. Also, if you have two seconds to go do a rating and a review, that really helps us get noticed in this ever expanding field of podcasts so we can reach more people. And finally, if you are going through infertility or family building in a non-traditional way, please check out fertilityrally.com, which is my passion project with Blair from Fab Fertility. You're a community, we've got content, we've got curated events, and we are there to support you no matter what you're going through. So let me know if you have any questions, but definitely check it out, thefertilityrally.com or on Instagram at Fertility Rally. All right, thanks. Talk to you next time.